Welcome to 76 West, a podcast of the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan, featuring talks from the JCC's Conversation Series, a marquee program of the Lambert Center for Arts and Ideas. This podcast is brought to you by Zabars at zabars.com. Today we'll be listening to a discussion between author Colson Whitehead and JCC Executive Director Rabbi Joy Levitt. Author of the National Book Award and Pulitzer Prize-winning novel The Underground Railroad, as well as the books John Henry Days and Sag Harbor, Whitehead's conversation with Rabbi Levitt tackles the Underground Railroad and the legacy of slavery in our country today. This talk was recorded May 17, 2017. I hope you enjoy it. Hey, howdy. Uh, thanks for having me. Um, so I first had the idea for the book uh, seven, now 17 years ago. I was sitting on my couch in Brooklyn and came across a reference to the Underground Railroad, and I remembered how when I was in fourth grade and my teacher was explaining it, um, I envisioned a little subway beneath the earth. Uh, I grew up in New York, and that was my first uh, vision of it, and it's highly impractical, of course, and then my teacher went on to explain how it actually worked. Uh, but I thought it would not be a weird idea for a book, just a quirky premise. And then I added the complicating element that each state that our hero goes through is a different state of American possibility, like Gulliver's Travels. And that seemed like a great idea. I knew that if I did it back then, when I was 30, I would have screwed it up. Um, and maybe if I wrote some more books, I might become a better writer. Maybe if I saw more of the world, was older, I could uh, bring that maturity to the book. Um, I could travel on a tramp steamer or stab a hobo with a penknife or something and bring that Hemingway-type knowledge to the book. So I waited, and each time I finished the book, I would come back to my notes and think, am I ready? And each time the answer was no. And until about three years ago, I, I sold I, an idea to my editor. And I was feeling a little, bit, a little iffy about it. So I told my wife about the idea of the Underground Railroad, see what she thought. Um, as some of you know, sometimes in a marriage, you have to make conversation and kill the silences. And so um, I told her about the Underground Railroad idea. And she said, I don't want to say the book you're working on now about a Brooklyn writer going through a midlife crisis is dumb, per se, um, but the other book sounds good, so I was like, huh. Um, so Tuesday, I, I decided to uh, tell my agent, see what she thought, and she said, I've worked with her for many years, and she just said, well, both ideas sound good. It's not very helpful. Uh, but then she did something she never does, which was email me on a Sunday. And she said, I can't stop thinking about that Underground Railroad idea. So I was like, huh? And then Wednesday was shrink day, so I told my shrink. And uh, my shrink was like, what are you, crazy? Um, I mean, we both know you're crazy, but with your issues, you should totally work on this book. Um, so I just left my editor, who I'd already sold an idea to, and uh, worked with him for many years as well. And he just said, giddy up, my which is old school publishing talk for, that's a very good idea and we should pursue it. Um, and so this book is what happened. I'll read for five minutes and then we'll have a nice conversation. So Cora goes to different states of American possibility. At one point, she ends up on Valentine Farm, which uh, is sort of a black utopia, founded by a free black man and his wife. Um, gets bigger and bigger as they take in strays, freed, freed slaves. Uh, runaway slaves, and they, um, they're self-sufficient, a small pocket of black self-sufficiency in Indiana. And every, every Saturday, they 
discuss the issues of the day, they have music, and debate things like what's next for uh, Black America. So in this section, Mingo, who's a more conservative voice, has just talked about his ideas. And then here's Lander, uh, who's a more sort of progressive, visionary voice uh, person. And this is what he has to say. <clears throat> Brother Mingo made some good points, Lander said. We can't save everyone. But that doesn't mean we can't try. Sometimes a useful delusion is better than a useless truth. Here's one delusion, that we can escape slavery. We can't. Its scars will never fade. When you saw your mother sold off, your father beaten, your sister abused by some boss or master, did you ever think that you'd sit here today without chains, without the yoke, among a new family? Everything you ever knew told you that freedom was a trick, yet here you are. Still we run, tracking by the good full moon to sanctuary. Valentine Farm, this place is a delusion. Who told you the Negro deserved a place of refuge? Who told you that you had that right? Every minute of your life's suffering has argued otherwise. By every fact of history, it can't exist. This place must be a delusion too, yet here we are. And America too was a delusion, the grandest one of all. The white race believes, believes with all its heart, that is their right to take the land, to kill Indians, make war, enslave their brothers. This nation shouldn't exist if there's any justice in the world, for its foundations are murder, theft, and cruelty. Yet here we are. I'm supposed to answer Mingo's call for gradual progress, for closing our doors to those in need. I'm supposed to answer those who think this place is too close to the grievous influence of slavery and we should move west. I don't have an answer for you. I don't know what we should do. The word we. In some ways, the only thing we have in common is the color of our skin. Our ancestors came from all over the African continent. It's quite large. Brother Valentine has the maps of the world in his splendid library. You can look for yourself. They had different ways of subsistence, different customs, spoke a hundred different languages. And in that great mixture, that great mixture was brought to America in the holds of slave ships, to the north, to the south. Their sons and daughters picked tobacco, cultivated cotton, worked on the largest estates and the smallest farms. We are craftsmen and midwives and preachers and peddlers. Black hands built the White House, the seat of our nation's government. The word we. We are not one people, but many different people. How can one person speak for this great, beautiful race, which is not one race, but many, with a million desires and hopes and wishes for ourselves and our children? For we are Africans in America, something new in the history of the world without models for what we will become. Color must suffice. It's brought us here to this night, this discussion, and it will take us into the future. All I truly know is that we rise and fall as one, one colored family living next door to one white family. We may not know our way through the forest, but we can pick each other up when we fall, and we will arrive together.
Good evening, everyone. Uh, full disclosure, Colson and I are cousins. So I want to first thank you for yeah. coming uptown uh, to talk with me when it's not a Passover Seder. Um, and by the way, you did miss this year's Passover I had a good Seder. And that, and that excuse was? Uh, you won. I, I heard I won the Pulitzer Prize. So. That's right. <laughs> I've heard of ways of getting out of a Seder. Well, the plan came together this time. Yeah, well, mazel tough on that. <laughs> so here's a, a confession. The first time that I learned about the historical Underground Railroad um, was in the fourth grade, and I'm quite sure that I was taught that it was not a real railroad. But I have to say, <laughs> this is really embarrassing, when I began to read the book, and I hadn't really thought about this since the fourth grade much, and I started to read about this real Underground Railroad, I thought, maybe I got that wrong. Sure, yeah. Maybe it really was an Underground yeah. Railroad, and I just didn't remember. So, like, how embarrassing it is to have to go to Wikipedia and actually check to make sure that, no, 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 I was right, and you were making it up. Well, I've, I've, a lot of people have said that to me, that they are going to Google just <laughs> to make sure. Like, they didn't think that it was one... And then they're like, yeah, was but it? I'm not a lot of people. So this yeah. was like really bad. But I want to know, like, I, you said you got this idea, but tell me about this, this thing you were playing with, um, fantasy, reality, and the larger thing that the combination of those two things seems to have created in this book. Well, I mean, you know, uh, the original idea was the railroad's real. And Cora is traveling through different alternatives in America. So it always had this fantastic element. And people said, why don't you just tell the story straight? And, you know, I don't belong to some historical novelist union. I'm not going to get kicked out by Hilary Mantel at the next <laughs> meeting. Um, and for I me, think, the I, honestly, I don't think people should be telling you what you should be writing about. Sure, yes, yes, yes. Well, Amazon has a feature where you can apparently <laughs> just give your thoughts about anything. Oh, nice. Uh, on books. So, um, uh, but, you know, I mean, a straightforward historical novel would follow someone running north. But then I couldn't do all the stuff I wanted to do and examine different parts of history, put them in conversation with each other and move things around and make the story about race and America and different kinds of oppression. So um, making things up allows me to not be hemmed in by what actually happened. And I guess my motto was, I won't stick to the facts, but I'll stick to the truth, a larger American truth that escapes uh, what actually happened. Um, and then, you know, mixing reality and, and fantasy, um, there was always going to be that fantastic element. And the more research I did and, you know, studying slavery as a grown-up as opposed to an eight-year-old watching Roots or being a college kid in my 20s, um, it, you know, it meant something different. It was very obviously horrifying, but then realizing, you know, when you have kids, how, what if they saw me go through, me get beaten or sold off, their mother beaten or sold off, uh, vice versa. Um, you know, I had an adult reckoning with you know, the true depravity of the system. And so I wanted to have Georgia be very realistic, and that means it's very brutal, because that's how it actually happened. And then uh, with the fantasy parts, I wanted to tell, have the sort of fantastic, absurd parts and tell them with a straight face. And part of that was very helpful for me was going back to 100 Years of Solitude, which I read when I was a teenager, 
And this edition of the book I read three years ago had an interview with Garcia Marquez, and he talks about how he came up with this form of magic realism from the stories of his grandmother. She would talk about mundane stories about the town and then mix in fantasy with a, with a brick face, he described it. And so uh, something's happening in town, and then the sheriff sprouts wings and flies away. Um, and he could never tell what was real and what was fake. And it seemed if I, had, if I could... I could meld a realistic story with the, fa with the fantastic elements and tell them with a straight face and that might work. And I think it ended up serving the story. I didn't realize until just now that on, on some level, the, the book is, is, well, you know, it's, it's, um, it's unrelenting in its pain on some level. But then when you get to those fantastical moments, it does actually give you a moment of I don't know if the word is relief exactly, but you go someplace else in there. Well, there, you know, there are false moments of, of safety. False moments, yeah, yes. Where, you know, right. should Cora stay in South Carolina or not? Uh, is Valentine Farm a place she wants to stay? And, you know, you're telling a story, so you have setbacks, and what you think, if she got to South, America, South Carolina, everything was great, then it'd be a 120-page book. So, uh, you know, so there is that thriller suspense structure, and... And even if you're dealing with a realistic slave narrative, uh, there's nothing more suspenseful than the real life or death stakes of if you're caught, you could be killed, you know, so. Can you talk a little bit about the preparation for the book? How much work did you have to do? What kind of, of research did you do? Did you spend a lot of time in the South doing it? I don't like to leave the house. Uh, <laughs> it's when you a go, very nice house, but. When you go outside, there's like too many people, I guess you call them. Uh, <laughs> so if I can do as much research, and in this age of the internet, I get quite a lot uh, in my house, I'm very happy. So um, a lot of the primary texts I use are slave narratives, Frederick Douglass, Harriet Jacobs, or the famous ones. In the 1930s, um, the US government, Works Progress Administration, putting people back to work, hired writers to interview former slaves, people in their 60s and 70s, who had been kids at the time of the Civil War, and got their life stories. And they're two paragraphs long or 10 pages long. And for a fiction writer, I was just hoovering up nouns and adjectives and uh, verbs that would hopefully make it sound realistic. And all the sort of details that are strange, like wooden shoes, you know. Mm. Uh, I came across a, a, in my early part of research, someone was saying, yes, master would give us all a new shipment of wooden shoes every year. And so for, for me, I'm like, who's the carpenter? Is he always expecting an order from the Randall Plantation? Does he have assistants? How long do they work? How long do they last before they need a new, new pair? What kind of wood? And so uh, those primary documents were very important for me to make it sound realistic. And then there are two or three histories of the Underground Railroad. Um, I was halfway through the book when Eric Foner brought his Gateway to Freedom, I think it's called. And about 10 years ago, eight years ago, um, Fergus Bordewich wrote a book called Bound for Canaan. So, I mean, you would think I did, I did more research than I did. I did like three months and I started writing and I, I do enough to get going and then sort of let it rip and then I can mm. stop and do more research if I don't know um, about the history of eugenics. I know it's in there, but... So uh, I do enough to get going and then I can always start and stop. You write every day? Um, when I'm working on a novel, you know, uh, eight pages a week is like my, mm. uh, a good uh, measure of progress, you know, a novel, uh, you have to keep your energy up and not get, and, you know, so eight, eight pages a week 
is good progress. And it could be Monday and Tuesday, and then I have a dentist appointment Wednesday, and then it's Saturday and Sunday. Or it's if I've been slacking all week, it's Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Uh, but you know, one to two pages a day or three pages, that's a really good day for me. And it adds up. You know, that's 400 pages a year. That's a novel. If you do four pages a week, that's a novel every two years. Um, so some people like Graham Greene did like one page a day, like 300 words, and he would supposedly stop in the middle of a sentence. That seems crazy. Uh, but he wrote like 60 books, so it worked for him. So, <laughs> so a nonfiction book about New York, a book about an elevator operator, a book about zombies, a coming-of-age novel, a book about poker. Is there a thread here that I'm missing? Well, I mean, like, most people have a lot of different interests, and I, <laughs> but I think, uh, so I, I was an amateur poker player, like, a, in a $5 game for many years, so when I got an assignment to go to the World Series of Poker, I was incredibly excited. Then I realized I didn't know how to play tournament poker, so I had to, like, learn how to do that, and it was frightening, but it was a great experience to do that book. Um, but general themes, you know, the city, I think race, pop culture, and um, if I can get jokes in this or that book, I'm pretty happy. This book has a very low joke count for me. Um, probably That's my lowest. the number of people who have read this book. I just want to point that out. Yeah, very few jokes. But so, you know, humor, the city, pop culture, race, and, uh, you know, that's... I'm just, I just think it'll be interesting to see how many people have read all of them, right? Who are following Colson Whitehead wherever he goes. Right? So, you know, the small, you know, it's a small group. Uh, they get together once a week. I think it's getting larger. <laughs> uh, but, it's, but it's nice because, you know, I've been touring a lot for this book and people have come up and said, you know, my first book is The Intuitionist. And it's like, I'm so proud of you. You stuck with it. Your kids didn't go to college. And I've been with you since you're The Intuitionist. And it's very nice to see those folks wow. come out. Wow. After 20 years, it's been almost 20 years. So, so you said earlier that the, the book has took you a decade from the time you first thought about it, actually more than a decade from the time you first thought about it till you actually wrote it. And you've said just now that you didn't think you could write it, that you weren't mature enough, you weren't good enough. Can you speak a little bit more to that idea? Why did you put so much weight on this book? And what made you finally ready to write it, um, I guess I'm interested in how you try to be a better writer. Well, I mean, um, uh, the, you know, the, a few things. I, I joke about talking to my wife and my editor and agent. Uh, uh, I think I was having real doubts about the book I wanted to do uh, at that moment. And I've been putting it off for so long, not to sound like self-helpy, but if I've been voting for so long, I might as well do the thing I've been scared of. You know, uh, you know, it sounds kind of corny, but I was just sitting there for so many years. And I've had ideas that I pick up and put down, but uh, it seemed uh, like a real challenge, and I was ready for a real challenge. Um, and there was a second part of your question about... Well, this idea that, that you're talking about, that, that, you're try that with each book you try to be a better writer. Well, I think, you know, hopefully, um, if I've written eight books, the eighth book, the eighth book's probably better than my first one, I hope. Maybe the seventh one kind of sucks, but maybe uh, the eighth book's better than the seventh book, and, you know, you get better as a writer. You learn how to uh, make characters come alive on the page in a more efficient, more realistic way. And I definitely feel like my last couple of books, I've dealt with character more. Um, uh, and then, you know, hopefully we keep getting older and hopefully, 
you become more empathetic and wise and knowledgeable about the world. And then that enriches the book. You know, when I had the idea when I was 30, I was kind of a slacker living in a shitty apartment. And um, I couldn't have written core then. I couldn't have uh, put the characters on the page in the way that they need, they deserve to be depicted. Um, so if you stick at something, uh, your profession, hopefully you get better over 20 years. And if you stick at trying to, be not such a jerk. You get become a better person over 20 years, and then that enriches the art. Does the writing help you be a better person, or does your being a better person help the writing? I think, you know, as I've gotten older and uh, settled down and have kids and a uh, lovely wife, you know, hopefully uh, uh, having more love in, in my life enriches my characters. And so I think it, I don't think writing something makes me a better person, but hopefully if uh, I know more about myself and the world, I can put that and make the, the books better. So when I was a teenager, my rabbi was arrested in Selma with Dr. King, and I grew up with the people and stories of Jewish activism in the civil rights movement, uh, a legacy that the Jewish community cherishes and also struggles with as it changed and was challenged. I have to say, as I read the book, I felt the pain of the violence of the black body in a way that was quite different from the politics or the morality of the t that time in American life. This was like physical um, in a way that I think my involvement in the civil rights movement and that of my friends was, was kind of intellectual, right? We thought this is unfair, this is wrong, this is bad for our country. But what the Underground Railroad does is require the reader to bear witness to a violence that is both unimaginable and yet happened every day all the time. This book is, no, the book is not brutal. Slavery was brutal and you captured in a way that's, um, that for me actually was more powerful than films I've seen. And this is actually the only time I can say that. Usually for me, film is what makes it real. And I think you've said that 12 Years a Slave for you was like right there. But for me- I, could, I, I started watching it when I was halfway through the book and I couldn't, I had to turn off. I could put it on the page, but I couldn't actually see actors doing what I was doing on the page every day. Yeah, but I had that experience with the book where I don't, I don't know why the, the page just, it got into my gut, and I, so I guess I'm wondering, did you write this book for you or for me? Uh, I often think of you, but um, nice. You know, I was trying to fulfill you know my artistic needs of 2014, 2015, and then if you do it right, other people come along for the ride. Sometimes you don't do it right, and people are quite indifferent when your book comes out. And but I think if I can get what I'm trying to do on the page. Uh, uh, to the best of my ability that year. Um, you know, hopefully other people, you know, uh, are along for the ride. They can see themselves. They can consider history in a different way. But really, I, I, you know, I am writing for myself. And in terms of the brutality of the book, I talked about reality and fantasy and telling with a brick face. Um, well, if you read slave narratives, they'll describe the most atrocious thing in that with a brick face, the most matter-of-fact tone, you know, two sentences in, a, in one of the WPA narratives. You know, then my mother was beaten to death 
period. And the next day I started for the fi- I started working the fields for the first time. And those two sentences, just two sentences, they're not uh, made dramatic, they're unadorned, uh, but there's so much going on there and, and it's horrific. And if it is your life, if your life is violence and brutality and you, you're telling someone about it, you don't dramatize it, you just, it's just a fact. And so, um, so I borrowed the matter of factness from magic realism, but also from the slaves themselves to get that narrative voice. Seventy Six West is brought to you by Zabars and Zabars.com. In 1934, Lewis and Lillian Zabar opened a shop along Broadway at 80th Street on New York's Upper West Side. Lewis was a stickler for quality, roasting his own coffee and personally visiting smokehouses to sample and inspect fish, rejecting far more than he accepted. Today, Lewis's principles and practices continue to guide Zabars. Respect the customer. Never ever stint on quality offer fair value. And last but not least, keep searching for the new and wonderful. Be sure to visit Zabar's store on 80th and Broadway or visit zabars.com for mouthwatering specialties like bagels, babka, rugelach, smoked fish, and of course, world-famous caviar. Zabar's ships to all 48 contiguous United States plus Alaska, Hawaii, and Puerto Rico. So there's no reason your friends can't enjoy the fresh, homemade taste of Zabar's any day of the week. So this book is going to be a, an Amazon miniseries, six or eight, God willing, puh, puh, puh. Um, <laughs> and, and it's about to be translated into 30 languages. And you're going to spend another bunch of time away from your kids, just saying. Surely, yes. Right? All over the, um, all over the world. And I'm curious about your sense of why the book, we understand why the book is powerful here in America where it's about us and, and a conversation that we need to be having. Why Poland? Why Sweden? Why the Netherlands? Well, I mean, uh, my previous books have been reliably translated in a few countries in Western Europe, Italy, France, and Germany. Um, and then, you know, I never know how my books will travel. And then with this one, uh, different countries started picking it up. And weirdly, a lot of countries uh, have history with either being enslaved or enslaving. And so the first translation that came out uh, was in Dutch because uh, a lot of people there read English. And so they get out fast. So they don't lose readers to the English version. And it did really well. And... They were the architects of the transatlantic slave trade, and they're coming to a reckoning with their role in uh, 19th, 18th century slavery, different than whatever kind of steps we're taking here. Um, so I think peasants in Russia, peasants in you know, China, I think those the power dynamic, which is made very stark by American slavery, exists in different forms, different cultures. So that's so I've only been to one foreign country where it's come out, and. I'll go to some more places and see how it's playing in different places. But I talked to some Brazilian journalists, and uh, they had they were they had such a key role in the transatlantic slave trade. Um, so they have a different sort of reckoning than the Dutch and Americans. So it's I'll know more a year from now. But uh, that 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 terrible power dynamic of the powerful enslaving, destroying, 
the week exists across time and across the globe. So, Your idea for this book and even the process of writing this book predates the election. And yet here it is, a book that appears about one of the most important conversations this country needs to have right now. Where does that put you as a writer? How, I mean, how does that inform when you have these conversations? Well, I mean, um, uh, I wasn't thinking of Trump, you know, when I was writing it. It was, he was still sideshow Bob Trump uh, that we know from being in New Yorkers. So obviously it was quite horrifying in November. Um, and I, I guess before the, before the election, I was, I was asked like, did Black Lives Matter inform the book? And as New Yorkers, you know that we have an obscene police brutality uh, incident every three years and we have a little conversation and then it fades off. So the answer was no. I mean, uh, Eleanor Bumpers, uh, Michael Stewart, 80s, uh, we have these big moments where we're suddenly talking about police brutality and white authorities' attitude towards black, uh, the black body, and then it, it dies off. So I wasn't, uh, that ebb and flow of that conversation uh, is my sense of things, and so I wasn't thinking of Black Lives Matter. After the election, people said, stop asking about that, and started asking about Trump, because uh, if you write about white, su white supremacy and white nationalism in 1850, and then we elect uh, a throwback white nationalist in the 2016. Obviously, you know it, it casts certain discussions in the book uh, and puts them in a different light. Um, Lander, that speech I was reading before, talks about the theft of land from Native Americans, enslavement of Africans, um, and there's a slave catcher in the book, Ridgeway, who becomes a philosopher or articulator of American imperialism, white nationalism, and manifest destiny. And all those forces made America. And uh, we had a nice respite for eight years. Uh, and then, but those strong nationalist sentiments don't go away. The demonization of the other, whether it's Mexicans or Muslims, African-Americans, uh, doesn't go away. Those you know, dark parts of our psyche, our, America, our character, are still there and always waiting you know, for a moment to express themselves. Sorry. <laughs> no, I just wonder to what extent you're now thrust in a role that you appreciate, would rather not be in. You want to go back into your cave and just write and know you can't anymore now because you've written this book. Well, I mean, you know, I have asked to do more, more sort of talk showy things. And the last thing I want to be is like some talking head on some, you know, douchey talk show. Um, but I am happy to talk about politics in the context of my I don't my know book. why that should stop you. <laughs> the rest of them are doing it. Yeah, there's that. plenty of people who can do that. Yeah, um, uh, but I write, and that's, you know, I write books, and I write essays. And before the election, I was like, that was a heavy book, kind of depressing. I'm going to do a happy, a cool crime novel, Harlem in the 60s. Then after the election, I was like, I guess I have to do another depressing story about institutional racism <laughs> and address what has actually happened. And so, um, so that's how I uh, make whatever contribution or try to figure out how the world works by writing about it. But that's not actually your next book. 
No, the crime novel is not. And now I'm working. You got on, over that. And now I'm working on. I, no, I am working on that institutional, oh. the, the more depressing book in Florida in the 60s. Good to know. So the All crime right. novel is off for another two years, and then. So I want to talk a little bit about Cora. I, I am really interested in what it, what it's like for a man to write so deeply about a woman to so fully embody this young girl and her um, maturity. And I have to admit that long after I finished the book, I, I'm worried about her. I wonder about her. I think about her. I mourn for her. And I only spent a few hours with her. You spent years with her. So I'm curious both about that process and what happens when you're, in a sense, done with her? No, I mean, uh, with the last couple of books, I, I've, they've stayed with me for you know, longer than my first couple of books. And definitely the last 30 pages of the book are you know, the best work I've ever done, like in my opinion. And I, I went back to them a lot uh, and just relived that sort of rush of creativity, those final few weeks where everything was sort of coming together. And I feel very proud of those days, and and I am moved by what happens, you know, on, on the farm and various other things before we get to the end. Uh, and she stayed with me more than you know previous protagonists. In terms of the, the choice, um, Harriet Jacobs wrote a, a famous slave narrative, uh, "Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl," which I read in college and, and stayed with me. And she writes about how. When a slave girl becomes a slave woman, you enter this, into this new, more terrible stage of slavery because now you're prey to your master's desires. You're supposed to breed and have babies because more babies means more slaves, more property to pick cotton. And it's a, just a different uh, hell for a slave woman and a slave man. And I thought that was worth exploring. I hadn't been a mother-daughter relationship before, and that was worth doing. And then finally, I had a few male narrators in a row, and so like... It's like, why just do the same crap over and over again, Coulson? So have a female protagonist. And then how is it to write someone like Cora? Um, is it hard? I think it's always hard. If it's easy, you're not doing the work. So whether the protagonist is very close to me or very different in temperament, it should be difficult. You know, it's, it's hard work. And so if it was easy to make Cora, I wasn't, I'm not really putting the work in. And so that's how I know if I'm doing it or doing not. Doing it right. Um, and I want to be careful here about spoil alerts, um, but let me say this. Despite the, the awfulness of this story, when I finally finished it, I felt kind of hopeful. And I wonder, particularly given the world as it is now, which obviously you hadn't anticipated when you began to write this book, whether you meant for me to feel hopeful and whether you feel hopeful, and why? Uh, well, well, whether the ending is hopeful is separate than, how, than if I feel hopeful. Um, I think the ending is more hopeful than not hopeful. In terms of how I feel about the world, um, uh, barring a nuclear apocalypse, we probably will survive what's happened in DC in December. Um, we make very slow progress as uh, human beings, as Americans, but Obviously, uh, we do make a little bit of progress. And as a parent, I just have to hope that uh, the world my kids will grow up in is better than the world I grew up in. 
And the same that my parents hoped that I and my siblings would have it better than they and my, my grandparents. And I do. And so uh, things are pretty terrible all the time. And then we move an inch further into uh, make an inch worth of progress. And sometimes it's two inches. And then sometimes we go back an inch. That was Colson Whitehead talking to the JCC's Rabbi Joy Levitt. Our podcasts are produced by Megan Whitman and me, Eric Winnick. Our editor is Matt Temkin. Music is by Peril Wolf. The voice of Zabars is Leah Rosensweet. Please give us a rating and review us on iTunes. And if you can, share this episode with your friends. If you're just joining us, welcome. And be sure to subscribe for future episodes.